a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, and once again, welcome to The Brian Hyde Show. Well, that would be me. Just, uh, just a humble guy. Speaking truth as best I understand it. Certainly don't have all the answers to the problems in the world, but uh, my job here, as I see it, is to uh, speak the truth, at least as, as clearly as I understand it. With the understanding, I don't, I don't know everything that's going on. I don't have, have, uh, I haven't cornered the market on truth. I can't really tell you. Here's what you should think. Here's what you should do. But I strongly encourage you to question everything particularly the official narrative, which is uh, delivered by much more highly paid blow-dried spinmeisters than myself. Why? Because, well, it just may be important to be able to sift fact from fiction. But, but here's the kicker. For all the fact-checkers out there, all the people who are there to steer you in the right direction to make sure you don't get any of that pesky misinformation, nobody can do a better job of fact-checking than you. Assuming that you have a conscience and assuming that you're willing to put that conscience to work, that's your best bet. So, with that in mind, pull up a chair. Let's revel in wrong think. Let's question some of the, the conventional wisdom that dominates our day. And, and I'm going to get this off my chest early on. Um, okay, so we've turned the calendar page. Oh my gosh, everything is a rainbow. And we're going to be force-fed a lot of woke ideology over the next few days, actually the, the next few weeks. And, and it may not even stop with June. It looks like, you know, uh, pride is now something that extends throughout the rest of summer and on into September. And who knows it? We may actually see a, a year of pride or decade of pride or an epic of pride declared because it's that important that everybody chant in unison and, and think exactly the same. Now, I'm not going to tell you, you need to be outraged. You need to be, have, you need to be out there in the streets with pitchforks and torches. My suggestion is find a place where you can enjoy life without having to, uh, you know, feel obligated to respond one way or the other to all of the activism that's going on. And this is what it is. It's activism. It's very focused it has captured many of the institutions out there, including your favorite sports teams and, and pastimes and corporate America. And it's just getting started. And in fact, I want to start. I'm, just, I'm not going to share the whole thing here with you, but I want to I recommend an article that I've linked in today's show notes. This is from National Review. Jim Garrity is the author. It's called A Culture War Reckoning for Corporate America. Just a couple of quick excerpts here. On the menu today, you can try to ignore the ongoing culture wars in the United States, but it seems like every day there's some new case of a corporation willingly tying its brand to some spectacularly controversial figure, group, or idea. I mean, do any of these ring a bell? Bud Light, Target, the Los Angeles Dodgers, maybe an upcoming film from the entertainment group mega conglomerate Disney. The odd thing is that these branding choices keep spurring boycotts and blowing up in companies' faces. For example, Modelo is now on pace to pass Bud Light as the number one beer brand in America. So he asks the question, are the corporate boardrooms watching? Are they willing to learn the hard lesson being taught by America's consumers? 
Is it a new era of corporate caution? And Jim Carrey says, don't threaten me with a good time. Now, I like what he's getting at here because this is not about, to, hey, are you sufficiently focusing your disapproval on the right group or people? He's hearkening to something much simpler. And, and, and look, sophists are going to try to twist this as well. The only reason you're upset is because you're filled with hate or you're a bigot. Don't play their game. Safely ignore them and just remember. We're thinking about a time when there was a beer company that just wanted to make good beer and sell it to you. Jim Garrity says, imagine if that company wanted to sell beer to everybody, but it didn't feel that its job was to make you more accepting of transgender individuals any more than its job was to warn you about the national debt or teach you the value of standardized testing in public schools or warn you about North Korea's intercontinental ballistic missile program. Imagine a beer company that liked its existing customer base and didn't feel a need to re-educate those consumers and get them to give up their fratty, kind of out-of-touch humor. He says, imagine a store, an everything store, like Target, that wanted everyone to shop there, but had the good sense to realize that partnering with a brand that had Satanist-inspired merchandise was really not the way to win over shoppers in a country that's still roughly two-thirds Christian. Also, he says, note that almost every faith has a devil figure, so there's no reason to think non-Christian religious customers are big fans of satanic branding either. You want to put rainbows and pride on your merchandise? Go right ahead. It's a free country. But if you partner up with a Satan respects pronouns designer, yeah, don't be shocked when a lot of people choose to shop somewhere else. He says, imagine a sports team that declared everyone was welcome but didn't formally and publicly roll out the welcome mat for the quasi-pornographic Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. Is the promotion worth it if you're alienating your team's star pitcher? Last year, the Los Angeles Dodgers led Major League Baseball in attendance. With the exception of 2020, the Dodgers have led Major League Baseball in attendance for the past nine seasons. Marketing the Dodgers in Los Angeles is like marketing water in the desert. The Dodgers don't need to reach out to the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgent fan base. He says they're choosing to reach out because someone in the organization likes that message. And the irony is that a significant chunk of the attending fans, as well as the players, are Christians. Now here's an interesting point. Hey, does any gay rights group want to dress up like Muslim imams? No? Okay, we know the score. Safe to pick on the Catholics because Catholics are going to turn the other cheek and ignore you or offer a mild protest. Dress up in drag to mock Muslims? There's a good chance you'll get firebombed. We saw this with the publication of Salman Rushdie's The Satanic Verses. We saw this with the Muhammad cartoons. We saw this with the Charlie Hebdo magazine in France. And we see it now. Those who enjoy mocking Christianity, ought to what they ought to fear is the day that certain Christians look at the Muslims and realize intimidation, threats, and violence are an effective way to make their faith unmockable. American society is perfectly okay with threats of violence in response to blasphemous speech, but we only tolerate it for certain faiths. And he says there are good reasons to doubt that that double standard is sustainable. He says, imagine a social media company that just let you follow whom you wanted to follow and didn't throttle or shadow ban certain users or posts that it deemed socially unacceptable. We don't have some sort of moderator regulating offline conversation. There's no Silicon Valley determining wh- whom you're allowed to talk or befriend, talk to rather, or befriend in the real world. 
So just kind of a, maybe this sounds like, oh, it's just nostalgia for the good old days, but I think the point to be taken here is if you feel like it's likely you're going to encounter a whole lot of rainbow-colored propaganda on social media, in the store, at your favorite sporting events, and so forth, you do have the ex- the uh, option of exercising your choice of not participating, not shopping, not patronizing, you know, that particular social media platform and so forth. Now, I know there are people like, well, Brian, but this is, hey, these are public spaces. I have every right to be there. Yes, you do. And if you choose to be there, you know, I then, you know, more power to you. For me personally, I'm choosing to minimize my contact with that uh, that particular part of the propaganda. I'm just it's it's not that I'm, you know, hiding my my gaze. I'm wearing blinders, you know, so I don't have to see anything here. I'm just making a conscious effort not to go where I have to deal with with this kind of stuff. It's just it's not for me. And some people will say, "Well, that's a very hateful and bigoted attitude." But look, I have no problem with people doing what they want to do to pursue their own happiness, especially what they're doing in the privacy of their own home or in their own bedroom. I don't care. I don't want to interfere with their pursuit of happiness. As long as it's peaceful, I'm fine with it. My objection, and I think this is true of most people who who really don't appreciate the force feeding that uh, goes on through Pride Month, I don't like to be compelled. I don't like to be coerced, and I do not like to be lectured at every turn. So I'm opting out. I'm reserving my right to withdraw my consent insofar as I'm able. And I, I got you. It's, the flags are flying everywhere, but uh, doesn't mean I have to participate. I don't have to uh, give it my attention. I don't have to give it my allegiance. And part of that is that means I'm not going to allow it to, uh, you know, to, to dictate, well, you should be upset about this. By the way, if I sound upset, well, I don't know. I'm certainly, uh, I'm certainly a, a bit passionate about this just because, uh, again, I don't like to be forced in any way. You try to force patriotism on me, I'm going to take a similar stance and put my foot down and say no. But it comes down to the bottom line of I will not be forced. And I'm suggesting that maybe you examine your hearts and determine whether or not you are willing to be forced. And if the answer is no, then say no and mean it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. So I got a couple of kids who are are, uh, working summer jobs. One of them is actually working a couple of summer jobs. And uh, the other, well, she's frustrated that her summer job hasn't yet started. And I'm very grateful that they have this opportunity to work. I know that this is kind of a controversial subject for some reason. It's like, uh, well, you know, if you get a kid out there working, why this is just undoing all these, uh, you know, years and years of child labor laws that protect the children, please. I actually love the article I found from uh, James Bovard. This was published on the Brownstone Institute's website. The best life lesson for a teen is a job. Now, I have to admit, one of the reasons I clicked on this is because, uh, frankly, I respect 
Jim Bovard. I think the guy makes a tremendous amount of sense. And he and he uh, he delivers in this column. He's right on target. He says during the co- the COVID debacle, kids were locked out of school or otherwise condemned to an inferior Zoom education for up to two years. So he asks, what were the alternatives? Unfortunately, since the New Deal, the federal government has severely restricted teenagers' opportunities for gainful employment. But new evidence proves that keeping kids out of work doesn't keep them out of mental health trouble. Yet suggesting that kids take a job has become controversial in recent years. James Bovard says it's easy to find expert lists on the dangers of teenage employment. Evolve Treatment Center, a California therapy chain for teenagers, recently listed the possible cons of work. Jobs can add stress to a child's life. Jobs can expose kids to people in situations they might not be ready for. A teen working a job might feel like childhood is ending too soon. Okay, good points. But Jim says, look, stress is a natural part of life. Dealing with strange characters or honorary bosses can speedily teach kids more than they can learn from a droning public school teacher. And the sooner childhood ends, the sooner young adults can experience independence. That's one of the great propellants, rather, of personal growth. Now, he says, he came of age in the 1970s. And he says, when when he came of age, nothing was more natural than seeking to earn a few bucks after school or during the summer. He says, I was terminally bored in high school, and jobs provided one of the few legal stimulants I found in those years. Thanks to federal labor law, he says, I was effectively banned from non-agricultural work before I turned 16. For two summers, I worked at a peach orchard five days a week, almost 10 hours a day, pocketing $1.40 an hour and all the peach fuzz I took home on my neck and arms. Plus, he says, there was no entertainment surcharge for the snakes I encountered in trees while a heavy metal bucket of peaches swung from my neck. But he says, actually, that gig was good preparation for my journalism career since I was always being cussed by the foreman. He was a retired 20-year Army drill sergeant who was always snarling, always smoking, always coughing. The foreman never explained how to do a task. He preferred vehemently cussing you afterwards for doing it wrong. What the hell's wrong with you, Red? became his standard refrain. No one who worked in that orchard was ever voted most likely to succeed. But Jim Bovard says at least one co-worker provided me with a lifetime of philosophical inspiration, more or less. Albert, a lean 35-year-old who always greased his black hair straight back, had survived plenty of whiskey-induced crouches, crashes rather, on life's roller coaster. Back in those days, young folks were browbeaten to think positively about institutions that domineered their lives, such as military conscription. Albert was a novelty in my experience, a good-natured person who perpetually scoffed. Albert's reaction to uh, almost everything in life consisted of two phrases, that really burns my rear end, or no crap. By the way, I'm I'm editing this because this will be on broadcast radio. So Jim says, after I turned 16, I worked one summer with the Virginia Highway Department. As a flagman, I held up traffic while highway employees idled away the hours. On hot days in the back part of the country, drivers sometimes sometimes tossed me a cold beer as they passed by. Nowadays, such acts of mercy might spark an indictment. But he says, the best part of my job was wielding a chainsaw, another experience that came in handy for my future career. He says, I did roadkill ride-alongs with Bud, an amiable, jelly-bellied truck driver who was always chewing the cheapest, nastiest cigar ever made, Swisher Sweets. He says, the cigars I smoked cost a nickel more than Bud's, 
but I tried not to put on airs around him. We were supposed to dig a hole to bury any dead animal along the road. Now, this could take a half hour or longer. Bud's approach was more efficient. We would get our shovels firmly under the animal, wait until no cars were passing by, and then heave the carcass into the bushes. It was important not to let the job crowd the time available for smoking. He says, I was assigned to a crew that might have been the biggest slackers south of the Potomac and east of the Alleghenies. Working slowly to to slip-shod standards was their code of honor. Anyone who worked harder was viewed as a nuisance, if not a menace. But he says, the most important thing I learned from that crew was how not to shovel. Any yuckapuck can grunt and heave material from spot A to spot B. But it takes practice and savvy to turn a mule-like activity into an art. So to not shovel right, the shovel handle should rest above the belt buckle while one leads, sl- leans slightly forward. It's important not to have both hands in your pocket while leaning since that could prevent onlookers from recognizing work in progress. But the key is to appear to be studiously calculating where your next burst of effort will provide maximum returns for the task. Now, one of this crew's tasks that summer was to build a new road. The assistant crew foreman was indignant. Why does the state government have us do this? Private businesses could build the road much more efficiently and cheaper, too. Bovard says, I was puzzled by his comment, but by the end of summer, I heartily agreed. The highway department could not competently organize anything more complex than painting stripes in the middle of the road. Even the placement of highway direction signs was routinely botched. So he says, while I was easily acclimated to government work lethargy, I was pure hustle on Friday nights unloading trucks full of boxes of old books at a local bindery. That gig paid a flat rate in cash that usually worked out to double or triple the highway department wage. The goal with the highway department was to conserve energy, while the goal at the book bindery was to conserve time, to finish as quickly as possible and move on to weekend mischief. With government work, time routinely acquired a negative value. In other words, it was something to be killed. So he says the key thing kids must learn from their first jobs is to produce enough value that someone will voluntarily pay them a wage. Now he says, I worked plenty of jobs in my teen years, bailing hay, cutting lawns, hustling on construction sites. I knew I'd need to pay my own way in life, and those jobs got me in the habit of saving early and often. But he says, according to today's conventional wisdom, teenagers should not be put at risk in any situation where they might harm themselves. The enemies of teenage employment rarely admit how the government fixes routinely do more harm than good. He says, my experience with the highway department helped me quickly recognize the perils of government employment and training programs. These programs have been spectacularly failing for more than half a century. In 1969, the General Accounting Office, or GAO, condemned federal summer jobs programs because youth regressed in their conception of what should reasonably be required in return for wages paid. In 1979, GAO reported the vast majority of urban teens in the program were exposed to a work site where good work habits were not learned or reinforced, or realistic ideas on expectations in the real world of work were not fostered. In 1980, Vice President Mondale's task force on youth unemployment reported private employment experience is deemed far more attractive to prospective employers than public work because of the bad habits and attitudes spurred by government programs. I'm going to cut to the chase here. 
He says, you know, the troubled teen years right now are producing dark harvests on campus. Between 2008 and 2019, the number of undergraduate students diagnosed with anxiety increased by 134%, 106% for depression, 57% for bipolar disorder, 72% for ADHD, 67% for schizophrenia, and 100% for anorexia. That's according to North Col- to National College Health Assessment. So, the rates are much worse post-pandemic. As psychiatrist Thomas Sass observed, the greatest analgesic, sulfuric, stimulant, tranquilizer, narcotic, and to some people, even antibiotic, in short, the closest thing to a genuine panacea known to medical science is work. Those who fret about the dangers of teens on the job need to recognize the opportunity cost of young adults perpetuating their childhood and their dependence. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. And a quick shout out to my sponsors, including MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, Borelli.com, TMCPNation.com, and ClimbingUpward.com. By the way, you can check out Climbing Upward Music as well. We'll have Dr. John Pulver back on the show here in the very, very near future. All right, a couple of different things to touch on. I, I know um, it's, it's considered very un-American to question country music. At the same time, it seems pretty clear that wokeness has uh, found its way into Nashville. Brian Parsons has a great essay on AmericanThinker.com called A Tale of Two Countries. He says, just recently I took my wife to a local country music concert to celebrate her birthday. And he says, I was surprised at the number of people drinking Bud Light there. Given the conservative market backlash to Bud Light's transgender beer campaign, I expected more people to choose no shortage of alternatives. He says, a friend observed that they saw a 30-pack of Bud Light at the local grocer for $12. That's why it was kind of odd to see people paying $12 for a single Bud Light tall boy. But he says one Bud Light drinker in particular stood out. This person was among the first to stand for the Memorial Day tribute of the national anthem played on the fiddle with the American flag waving on the jumbotron. By the way, this same person also knew all the words to Toby Keith's courtesy of the red, white, and blue. And he said, at that time I realized... Many Americans are blissfully unaware or apathetic to the current affairs. They're just here to catch a good time. He says, country music presents an interesting metaphor for modern America. Traditionally family and faith-oriented, now shallow and self-interested, it's always been a storytelling art form that celebrates a simpler life, God, family, and traditional morals. With the recent mainstreaming of country music came a melding of pop, rap, hypnotizing beats, and repetitive lyrics emphasizing superficial topics like sex and alcohol. He says, I've heard this called country rap or crap, and that's an apt description. Songs I would place in this category are often the least melodious or creative, but would be the first to get the youth up and dancing at the concert. Now, he says, I heard a recent Sirius XM interview with Hall of Fame songwriter Steve Warner in which he grieved the loss of storytelling in country music and the promotion of cliches like whiskey in every tune. And he says, I can relate to this sentiment. 
I enjoyed many crap songs for the mindless anthems that they are, but I also find myself irked by the lip service to country themes without much depth to them. In one of the latest radio hits, Good Time, by country artist Nico Moon, the listener is treated to cliché lines as, Like a bobber on a wet line, we just trying to catch a good time. An homage to, an homage to a classic country songs like Fishing in the Dark by the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band that repeats throughout the chorus. He says, What irks me most about the shallowness of these kinds of lyrics is that they're a cosplay of a genre that celebrates an authentic heritage. Putting on a pair of cowboy boots while twerking no more makes you a cowboy than putting on a dress makes you a woman. Cowboys exist, and many still fight to maintain their traditional values nationwide. He says the shift in country music toward shallowness and commercialization coincides with a shift in Music City, Nashville. Long seen as the epicenter of country music and home to the Grand Ole Opry and Country Music Hall of Fame, Nashville became an attraction for country music, what Hollywood is to film. Commercial politics and a leftward bend to a historically family-oriented genre came with commercial recording dollars. At the most recent CMT Awards, viewers were treated to pride flags and drag queens dancing in fanciful Western regalia just days after a deranged transgender person shot up a private Christian school in Nashville. Country music artists themselves have adopted leftist politics into their art. Hall of Famers Tim McGraw and wife Faith Hill have openly waded into gun control debates. Once the crooner of chest-puffing gender pieces as I'm Still a Guy, country music artist Brad Paisley recently recorded a song with perpetual Ukrainian war celebrity President Volodymyr Zelensky. Platinum recording artist Lady Antebellum disavowed the term antebellum during the height of Black Lives Matter protests and truncated their name to Lady A. Unfortunately, that trademark was already taken by a black blues-performing artist. Thankfully, they sued her to appropriate the moniker so they could end racism. <laughs> Ironic, right? So if politics is downstream from culture, it seems the primary strategy for injecting leftist politics into conservative America has been infiltrating the conservative culture. Much like the urban culture was co-opted by the commercial glorification of gangs, sex, drugs, and alcohol in rap and hip-hop, by the, the same playbook has been deployed against a traditionally conservative demographic and appeals mainly to the apathetic class. In one of the latest radio hits, country artist Hardy pays tribute to all things red about conservative culture, barn doors, Budweiser cans, and red dirt, but is quick to preface the, all that is praisey with I'm not talking politics. Interesting. Conservative politics are verboten in the new conservative culture. Brian Parson says at the concert we recently attended, there were still splashes of conservative Americana, whether an occasional lyric referencing church or the prior mentioned Memorial Day tribute. Still, attendees were primarily treated to celebrations of alcohol and getting naked in various forms, including a promotional commercial featuring the headliner selling his personally branded premium whiskey. And while there's always been an element of women and whiskey in country music, the complete saturation of all things country with the superficial aptly represents an intentional leftward infiltration. Interesting. I don't. Are you a country music fan? Again, this is this is the uh, the work of uh, Brian Parsons. He's a paleoconservative uh, columnist from here in Idaho. I like his thinking. I like what he's saying here, but I I agree. I tease my kids. <clears throat> I've got a daughter who raises steers for 4-H and 
You know, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say she's a cowgirl, but uh, when she puts on her boots and stuff, she she does not look out of place. She's got the, you know, cow poop on her shoes to to prove she walks the walk as well as, as talks the talk. But I tease my kids about bro country. And, and maybe this is just, you know, the old man yells at clouds, you know, generation gap here. But, you know, I think of George Strait. I think of, uh, you know, T.G. Shepard and some of these classic old country performers. And it's not that their songs were pure as the driven snow, but there, there was always within that country music genre a, a kind of respect, love of country, a respect for traditional values, even if sometimes, you know, they could be a little on the redneck side and, you know, hard drinking, hard fighting, you know, wave that flag and, a boot up your rear end, you know, Toby Keith, that one that one was for you. But I have to agree with Brian Parsons' conclusion here. Country music is is like most entertainment genres being overtaken by wokeness. And I'm not suggesting therefore everybody should burn their country music albums or otherwise, you know, you know, you need to to divest yourself of anything country. Maybe this is just the natural progression of things. Again, this I'm sure my parents probably had similar conversations about what's happening to the music in our day. Of course, about the time I came on the scene, the, you know, the counterculture stuff was really starting to kick in. But it is tough to see, you know, some of the beloved icons being co-opted. And frankly, I have kind of a soft spot in my heart, you know, for the American cowboy simply because that is one of those iconic symbols of rugged individual individualism, freedom, you know, personal grit, the ability to make do without uh, having a lot of fancy things around you, and, uh, and most of all, fidelity. You know, I think you would find that, uh, you know, if you were given the choice between, you know, if, if, if your car broke down and a, a group of uh, motorcycle gang members pulled up versus, you know, couple of cowboys in a pickup truck who would you feel more comfortable about uh, you know leaving you know to watch over your car or offering to take your family into town you know i know who i would feel more more comfortable in trusting no disrespect to uh, you know the motorcycle riders but you know there's a reason why you know the cowboy has that that iconic you know status and of course i'm thinking of people like uh, lavoy finnicum who was, was a legitimate cowboy. He didn't just dress up like a cowboy. He went out there and knew what he was doing. By the way, same thing with, with the Bundy family. I know that one of one of the things that uh, critics of Ammon Bundy likes is, take off your cowboy hat. You're just pretending to be a cowboy. Have they ever seen him ride a horse? they ever seen him lasso a steer? Because the guy can do all of that stuff. But really what he's known for is standing up in the face of overwhelming opposition to claim, use, and defend his rights. So I guess I would, I would understand if at some level, you know, now we're trying to, uh, to uh, remake, you know, everything in this rainbow image, and we've got to somehow take the American cowboy down a few notches and make sure that it's as adulterated as the rest of, of our uh, cultural, you know, iconography. But I don't, I don't think the Cowboys are going to go along with that. At least I hope they don't. I'd like to think that's one place where there's still some common sense. And a person who pushes a little too far or a little too hard 
may just risk themselves a punch in the nose from a cowboy who's had enough. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Thanks for sticking with me this long. I know I can take some uh, pretty weird uh, trips out into the weeds here, but I'm going to bring it all home here. A couple articles I want to share in this final segment of today's show. Um, one that uh, I, I always I love to see, Lenore Skenazy. She she is such a, a remarkable writer and, and such a great advocate for the right of parents to raise their kids without being helicopter parents. They're so risk averse that, you know, we have to, you know, mount a security detail just for the kids to go down to the neighborhood park and play. She's got an article that was just published in intellectualtakeout.org. Why do we keep underestimating kids? I don't know if this hits you like it hits me, but I think she's got a point worth considering here. She says child protection laws and policies that determine at what age kids can do things on their own are often wildly out of whack with actual child development and grossly underestimate kids' capabilities. Now, she says that's not just her saying that, although she always does. Now it's all there in a comprehensive review just published in Social Policy Report. She says a country that investigates or arrests parents who let their kids walk the dog at age 8 or go to the donut store at 7 and 9 or wait in the car at age 11 is at odds with biological, psychological, and cross-cultural evidence showing just how competent kids are. She says our compulsion to underestimate kids and overestimate danger is reflected in our child neglect laws. One in three U.S. kids will be reported to Child Protective Services at some point in their childhood, usually for alleged neglect. Now, the paper's authors are Rachel Flynn, Nicholas Shaman, and Diane Redleaf. Flynn and Shaman are psychology professors. Redleaf is a civil rights attorney who works with Lenore Skenazy's nonprofit, Let Grow. The three reviewed child development research and ethnographic studies to determine the age at which kids are objectively ready for some healthy childhood independence. And that age is? Well, she says there is no exact age that covers every kid in every situation, of course. But in general, the authors found that children's roles and responsibilities in their social setting often undergo a qualitative shift around five to seven years old. In fact, in many communities, children as young as five years old take responsibility in caring for other children or for younger children. Lenore Skenazy says the authors used walking to school as the quintessential activity to illustrate each facet of child development. From a physical perspective, they report most kids ages 6 and 7 have all the skills needed to walk or ride to school. Having walked to kindergarten, she'd say, I'd say that kicks in even sooner. Cognitively, kids know how to listen and respond appropriately by age 4. By 4 or 5, they can understand what a map represents. By 5, kids are ready to start their formal education, which requires the ability to do things like wait rather than immediately act on their impulses and to remember what they're told. Those are the same social and emotional skills needed for a walk to school. In short, most kids benefit from some degree of independence by the time they're five to six years old. And yet here in the U.S., many schools will not let kids get dropped off at the bus stop even a few houses from where they live unless an adult is there to accompany them home. 
These rules can cover kids through ages 8 or 9. Many libraries don't allow school-aged kids to browse alone. County guidelines across Northern Virginia say no child under age 9 should ever be unsupervised, even in their own yard. But she says sanity is prevailing, however. Virginia just became the fifth state to pass Lat Grow's Reasonable Childhood Independence Law, which says that neglect occurs when parents put their children in obvious, serious danger, not any time they take their eyes off them. Unfortunately, the Social Policy Report paper found the overwhelming majority of states still have laws and policies that treat unsupervised kids as automatically neglected. She says competence doesn't magically kick in at a certain age. It grows with experience. Kids are not allowed to walk home from school until age 9, 10, or even 11. They just aren't getting the chance to develop responsibility, autonomy, and problem-solving skills. She says that's why the paper calls on legislators to remove language in laws and policies that set age limits for independent activities. Moreover, states should use scientific knowledge rather than presumptions to decide if kids are ready for some unsupervised activities. Until they do, Lenore Skenazy says, our culture is creating anxious, incompetent kids, then making laws that reinforce their stunting. Pretty powerful stuff. I think she's right. Look, I want to protect my kids. I want to protect my grandkids. But I also want them to grow up having enough confidence that they can figure things out. They can act without waiting for someone to signal them, yes, you have permission. If they need to pour themselves a bowl of cereal, oh, I might get frustrated when they spill the milk, but I'd rather have them capable of feeding themselves than having to wait for somebody to choose. I don't know what kind of cereal do I want. Ah, This is so hard. (laughs) I think you get the point. All right, moving on. One last article. Um, Because lawnmower season is in full swing, as well as other gas-powered yard implements, if you've had to fill a fuel can lately, you uh, probably understand the frustration that comes with the new government-mandated spouts on all the gas cans. Oh, my word. They can be so frustrating. There's a great article that was published, uh, this was back in 2017, The Epic Failure of the Government Gas Can. This was on the Foundation for Economic Education's website. Clyde Wayne Cruz is the author. He says, Part of living on Earth is mowing its grass and performing outdoor chores. Last International Earth Day, while the globe held hands and celebrated Gaia and executive climate change agreements, he says, I was monkeying with my several gas cans in the storage shed. Why several? Well, I'd watched all the folks after 2012's Hurricane Sandy lining up for blocks not for personal wind turbines or solar power packs, but fighting over a gallon or two of gasoline. So he says, I got my basic prepper supplies without going excessively overboard, of course, along with my several five-gallon gas cans. I filled them up, added fuel stabilizers so they'd keep a while and made plans to rotate the fuel a time or two a year. But he says, when I tried to use these new gas cans a few months after their purchase, I was shocked at their new spring-loaded, mousetrap-game-style Environmental Protection Agency-engineered spouts. He says, I quickly learned what many outraged boat and outdoor forum folks already knew. You need three hands to operate today's gas can spouts. You'll start each project spilling more gas than you get into the mower, motorcycle, car, or whatever. In other words, you will create more vapor emissions than you ever would have otherwise. So what the heck happened? 
the EPA banned normal gas cans in 2009 following the pioneers at the California Air Resources Board, which intones, the portable fuel container, or PFC, regulations are an important concept in our efforts to improve California's air quality. PFCs, also known as gas cans, also known as gas cans, while you see the mentality just from the ridiculous government acronym and paternalistic condescending language. No gas cans available for sale anymore have vents on the opposite topside either. So when trying to pour, you get a sloshing, heaving mess, burping gasoline eruptions leaking from the complex yet flimsy spout that easily breaks. Go see for yourself at Ace or Home Depot. It's like a giant joke, a societal dribble glass prank imposed on the entire population. He asks, what was the EPA thinking? You can barely pour a simple 14-ounce can of evaporated milk without popping a notch in the opposite side, let alone a heavy five-gallon container. Well, he says, Googling this weekend to figure out more about what happened to American normalcy, I found Jeffrey Tucker's How Government Wrecked the Gas Can. Topping the search results, he observed that nobody would make such a device without a vent except under duress. And he says, that's for sure. I recall filling anything and everything with gas from my mini bike and lawnmower as a kid, like milk jugs. We'd pour with a funnel and not spill since we didn't have enough spare cash to waste gasoline. In fact, he says, come to think of it, we'd ride to the gas station from my parents' tobacco farm, sitting on the lip of the pickup truck bed, which I can't do anymore. At least I can still pour a pack of Tom's peanuts into a bottle of Coke and drink that. Jeffrey Tucker observed naturally that most of us buy gas cans only a time or two in our lives, and new generations won't know any better. But it's another signature example of a string of once-normal things that work worse thanks to the geniuses in the federal bureaucracy. Soap doesn't work, toilets don't flush, clothes washers don't clean, light bulbs don't illuminate, refrigerators break all too soon, paint discolors, lawnmowers have to be hacked, And it's all caused by idiotic government regulations that are wrecking our lives, one consumer product at a time, all in ways we hardly notice. Now, there's a lot more to this article. I'm going to invite you to uh, check it out for yourself. It's included in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Again, this is for June 1st, 2023. So if you're uh, gassing up your mower or whatever, your chainsaw, your weed whacker, maybe your side-by-side, Just know, somebody else notices and feels your pain and frustration over all those new uh, government-mandated, here's the air quotes, improvements in the gas can. By the way, there are some good aftermarket gas uh, spouts that are sold. Maybe I should find a link to those. This is The Brian Hyde Show.